None of us, I imagine, slept very heavily or continuously that morning, for both the excitement of Lake's discovery and the mounting fury of the wind were against such a thing. So savage was the blast, even where we were, that we could not help wondering how much worse it was at Lake's camp, directly under the vast unknown peaks that bred and delivered it. McTie was awake at ten o'clock and tried to get Lake on the wireless, as agreed, but some electrical condition in the disturbed air to the westward seemed to prevent communication. HPPodcraft.com That was the first paragraph of Chapter 3 from H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Badness. And you are listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at HPPodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And we are joined by a third person this week, Chad. Who, who is that? Ian J. Colbot. Ian J. Colbot. What, it's Ian? Ian what? <laughs> I've been saying Ian forever. Why have you never corrected me? No, it's the initials. Ian J. Colbot. Oh. But your name is Ian. Yeah, my name is just Ian. Oh, well, now Ian and I have had this discussion before, actually, because I was I was saying why don't why do you use INJ instead of Ian, and it's because you just don't like your first name, which I'm the same way, right? Because you know Chad is always the mean frat guy in the movie, or the you know the, the dope the dopey <laughs> jock. But I don't understand why you don't like Ian, because I think Ian Curtis, Ian Fleming, that's a cool name. Yeah, I don't see. I don't get those connotations when I, when I think of the name. I just I don't know. It's just one of those things. I don't change it either because I know that then it's my responsibility. So I just stick with it and, you know. But in print, I just have INJ Cobalt. I can live with that. That's fine. Incidentally, if you add the name Ian to any word, you get an Armenian last name. <laughs> Ian Footrub? No, 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 no. You add it to the end. Like Footrub Ian? Footrubian would be an Armenian name. Footrubian. Oh, I see. Okay. I have an actual gotcha. mechanic who's named Rafi Batmanian. <laughs> <laughs> That's his name. Okay. For those of you who are wondering who INJ Colbard is, he is the illustrator and adapter of the graphic novel version of At the Mountains of Madness. You're also working on The Case of Charles Dexter Ward right now, isn't that right? That's right. I was just imagining it's got to be great when you get the cover and it says Colbard Lovecraft. Or Lovecraft Colbard. Right. Oh, he goes first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, that is cool. I remember the first time when that went up and that was, that was really exciting. Because we were looking at the posters for it and the book cover. We always did a book jacket design first, and then uh, that was kind of nice putting that up. And now Mr. Colbart is working on the forthcoming graphic novel that Chris and I wrote called Deadbeats. Yeah. And uh, compared to those names, it's going to look pretty dumb when it's Colbart Pfeiffer Lackey. <laughs> Why is this guy slumming it with a, <laughs> with a flute player and a medieval servant? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. I just want to say... Uh, uh, the opening reading that we heard, we once again have the talents of the actor Joe Freya on the show. Yeah. He's going to be doing our readings for us. And also, we're, again, using the music of Reber Clark. Glad to have them along for our journey. Now, right. where did we leave off, Chris? Uh, well, so the story so far, William Dyer, a geologist, and a group of scientists are on an Arctic expedition. They've found some fossils, specifically fossils of a complex life form back when there shouldn't have been any kind of complex life forms. Right, the second group that split off, yes, exactly. uh, led by Lake, found that. Right, right yeah. They, so they split off into two groups. The second group found that. Uh, Lake is the biologist, and not only did they find that, they found a frozen body or bodies of these 
barrel-shaped creature things. And these things are like part vegetable. They're very strange. They're hard to understand. They seem kind of ageless, and they remind they remind like of the elder things from the dreaded Necronomicon. So Dyer is right now waiting for a message to come back from Lake, and then they're gonna hopefully send a plane back to pick up Dyer and the rest of the guys, which is Peabody and that whole group. And Dyer's our Dyer's our main character. He's sort of narrating this whole thing and writing it, right? Uh, as as a way to warn off the coming uh, ex- Tony Stark, Roger Moore expedition that's going to be going up. <laughs> now, Dyer's group is super excited to hear more from Lake's group. The things that he's been sending, as we heard in the last episode, the, the messages that he's been sending are really incredible. I mean, this is going to mean all of their careers are made. Yeah. It's insane. They, they found the greatest mountain ranges in the world. They found prehistoric beings that shouldn't have existed that were highly evolved. And uh, Lake had been dissecting one of them, I think, was one of the last messages we got over the wireless. But now as we get into the third chapter, they keep trying to reach him throughout the day, and they they can't get a hold of him. They wait and they wait for Lake to contact them, and he doesn't, and they start to get worried. And then it's by 6 o'clock the next evening, they call the home base, which is back where the, the boats are. And they say, we've got a problem. They have one plane that they held back for an emergency. And they're like, this is the emergency. We need to go find out what's going on because we can't get a hold of these guys at all. And it's especially troubling because Lake has the other four planes and all of them have great wireless communicators. So there's no reason that they shouldn't be able to hear from yeah. them. So they decide uh, it's uh, 7.30 in the morning the next day they're going to take off and... Uh, no, sorry, I'm sorry, 7.15 a.m. the next day, January 25th, and they're going to fly to this new excavation site. They're going to fly to the camp that Lake had set up right. to find out what's going on, and so they take off with 10 men, 7 dogs, all the supplies they might need. Actually, during this passage, too, we, we learn that uh, as they take this flight, Dyer's saying, this is the part of the expedition that changed my life forever. And we learn that he's 54 years old at mm-hmm. the time of the expedition. Right. Um, and, that, and that was when he lost all sense of peace and balance, which made me wonder... And I know it's not happening now, but who was Tom Cruise supposed to play in that? Uh, William Dyer. He's going to be playing William Dyer. That's yeah. what I've read. Well, Tom Cruise is was... pretty old. I mean, he's not that far <laughs> off of 50. Sure, I just thought maybe they'd, you know, they'd tossle his hair and have him as Danforth. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's what he would insist on. Um, okay. uh, over the four-and-a-half-hour flight it takes them to get to Lake's camp, they start to see the things that Lake had been reporting. The sailor Larson was the first to spy the jagged line of witch-like cones and pinnacles ahead, and his shout sent everyone to the windows of the great cabin plane. Despite our speed, they were very slow in gaining prominence, hence we knew that they must be infinitely far off, and visible only because of their abnormal height. Little by little, however, they rose grimly into the western sky, allowing us to distinguish various bare, bleak, blackish summits, and to catch the curious sense of fantasy which they inspired as seen in the reddish Antarctic light against the provocative background of iridescent ice dust clouds. In the whole spectacle there was a persistent pervasive hint of stupendous secrecy and potential revelation, as if these stark nightmare spires marked the pylons of a frightful gateway into forbidden spheres of dreams and complex gulfs of remote time, space, and ultra-dimensionality. I could not help feeling that they were evil things. Mountains of madness whose farther slopes looked out over some accursed ultimate abyss. That seething, half-luminous cloud background held ineffable suggestions of a vague, ethereal beyondness far more than terrestrially spatial 
and gave appalling reminders of the utter remoteness, separateness, desolation, and eon-long death of this untrodden and unfathomed Austral world. So that's Dyer getting an eyeful of these crazy high mountains. These mountains are way higher than even Mount Everest, this whole mountain range. And it's here that Danforth suggests that there's an abnormal cubism to the peaks. And again, they bring up the work of Rorick. Now, Ian, did you consult that work at all, the, the Rorick paintings? And, and what other resources did you draw from when kind of trying to draw this stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I took from uh, Rorick straight away. There's a painting that he did of Tibet. Well, there's loads of paintings of Tibet, but there's the specific ones that really struck a chord. But there's other aspects as well. There were things like, um, there was a film by Frank Capra called uh, Lost Horizon. When you actually get to the city, the look of the whole thing is kind of like an Art Deco looking city, uh, but it's supposed to be ancient Tibetan. And so there were elements of that in there. Right. One of the first things they see of the this ancient civilization up in the mountains is they see these huge cube-like temples and that was just basically a box stuck on the side. The whole idea of that was that it was an odd geometric shape against something that was a natural formation. Right. And uh, it's also suggested here that perhaps this is the Plateau of Lang, which we've heard before. Yeah, which um, was supposedly in Central Asia, but right. now, they're, now, now he's changing his mind that maybe it's not Central Asia, maybe this is it, this is the Plateau of Lang. But they, because they talk about it having been in the narcotic manuscripts which yeah was what for, what are those do you don't remember chad what should i what are, you should remember from polaris <laughs> oh really i should remember that was two years ago man oh and also the dream quest of unknown Kadat. oh well okay nah, school see. me i bring it tell, tell me briefly what those are again well they're just these really ancient documents that were from this prehistoric civilization that were aliens remember the eskimos came and killed them and did all that stuff sure to the people okay. that wrote the Nakata. they're supposed to have records of prehistory so they're, they were written by some guy darcy Nakotic or something no n- no <laughs> I don't know. No. We, you know what it comes up, the reason I don't remember is because it comes up again and again, but there's no real fleshing out or explanation of what these things are no, other there than isn't. That they're obscure esoteric and ancient. And well and again here he mentions he's sorry that he had read the Necronomicon and he's sorry he talked to Wilmarth so yeah. much. So he speaks uh, he speaks about Wilmarth who was the protagonist in A Whisper in Darkness. So in this journey as they're scaling this these giant mountains they also have a sort of polar mirage of a cyclopean city. That's how he explains it is as a mirage, but it's not actually a mirage. It's well, real. yeah, we're, we'll find that out later, but, <laughs> but as he sees it right now, it's some kind of reflection or image or mirage that they a few of them see, and it's the city that has no architecture known to man, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's correct. In the adaptation that you do, you, sh- you sort of yeah. reveal this when, they, when they're going up later, as yeah. opposed to now in the story, which is sort of the first time that they see it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that was much more influenced by the format that I was telling the story, and you have this mechanic in comics, which is essentially just turn a page, a reveal, and you get the money shot. Right. And so what I wanted to do was just save that until we actually go over the top, and then you have this big, vast reveal, as they would see it. Yeah, and I think that's definitely the right choice. Here, I think what Lovecraft is trying to do is show them something that's crazy, but allow them to think it was a mirage, so that when they do actually see the real thing, it shatters their minds that much more. You know, this is real! <laughs> you know, Right. Um, yeah. Structurally, with this story, there's a lot of forward and backward and forward and backward of time. That's the hook he uses all the way through the story structurally. They land at Lake's camp. This is the last time that McTie sends 
an uncensored wireless message. Oh, right. And he explains that this, you know, this is what we started telling people. That, first of all, there's 11 people dead, and Gendy, who is one of the uh, grad students, is missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gedney. Yeah. Oh, Gedney. I'm sorry. Gedney is missing. They only say that one of Blake's men must have gone mad, but they don't really go into it. Right. And, and he suggests here the, the plane shelters were crushed, the planes themselves are blasted, the dogs are gone. From the wind. There was the, the terrible windstorm. That, that's what they say caused it. Yeah, and I do think that it has that appearance that there was some terrible windstorm mm-hmm. initially. There's a lot of suggestion here in Chapter 3. You know, he mentions that Danforth and he took another expedition. When they, they came back, they, when they came back, they withheld the details to the people they went out there with, he and Danforth. Yeah. Uh, and they decide, as soon as Danforth and he come back, they decide best course of action is to head back home as soon as possible and discourage anybody else from coming out here. Mm-hmm. And uh, he concludes this sort of preview chapter by saying, So I must break through all reticences at last, even about that ultimate nameless thing beyond the mountains of madness. And then we get into chapter four where there are some details about the discovery of the camp. Honestly, this chapter, it didn't need to be a whole chapter. It's just kind of giving you a light version of what happened, and then he tells you yeah. what happened. It seemed to me to be a little windy. This is the part where the story slows up a bit. I think everything's been going at a really good clip and really good pace up until then. He, he starts going into this pattern, as Ian was saying, where he'll introduce something and kind of give a sketch of it and then go back and then repeat it again with a little more detail. And, and he goes back and forth like this for a while. But also, uh, we have to remember that the story originally was in chapter form. Uh, well, it was uh, broken down in, I think, three parts. Basically, when you get to that next chapter, say you were reading it in separate form like that, right. he would have moments of exposition written into the story that right. kind of catch you up on where you are. And a lot of that forward-backward stuff that he does in this is a way of covering those tracks in a way that is not kind of... It tells you the same thing again, but it tells you slightly differently with a little bit more information. And so I think he does that. Although he's guilty of doing that, he does that reasonably admirably. I agree. Hopefully, yeah. it w- I'm not coming across as saying I would have done a great, better job because I wouldn't have. The story is <laughs> fantastic. That's that's not my point at all. The chapter three actually ends the first part when it was published originally in Astounding Tales. Chapters one mm. through three were the first segment, and then four is where the second segment actually begins. Oh well, that makes a heck of a lot more sense to me then. Yeah, there you go. But also, it's funny because didn't you mention in the first one his spelling was corrected? Yeah. It's funny because when we do when we do books over here in England. That basically, whatever you're writing, the editor will go through it and correct it to English spelling. And I normally write with Americanized spelling because I grew up reading comic books, so all my spelling tends to be Americanized. Yahoo! And <laughs> things like color makes way more sense. I have no idea why there's a U in it in I English. Agree. I've never quite understood that. And we dropped the U from Emperor, so I don't get why we still got it in color. But, um, there's little things like that and it tends to be the more phonetic something is I'll go for that I'll, do, I'll go towards them so my spelling in the book was corrected into English whereas his was being corrected into American oh really the other way around <laughs> freaking editors <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny okay well uh, chapter 4 then we're getting into this new part boy I, I didn't realize this was broken up that really kills some of the things that I was critical about well anyway so we get into chapter 4 uh, <laughs> zap there you go it's gone yeah and, and this is the horror at the camp basically yeah this is where uh, he, he lays it down for you what really happened what they really found 
Yeah. And and when they got there, it did look like there was a storm, but but much more than a storm. It looked oh, like yeah. there had been some sort of terrible conflict. Death to all the men had come from some kind of strangulation. They think the dogs possibly started it by bursting from their shelter. They know that the dogs ripped their way out of the <clears throat> shelter, which made me think of, do you remember in The Thing, when The Thing goes yeah. crazy in the movie, the John Carpenter <laughs> movie, and those dogs yeah. are so terrified that they're ripping through the metal me- mesh. Yeah. You know, they're pulling it apart. Oh, man, that movie's so I know. Good. It's actually a hard part of that movie to watch. I mean, I could see guys get their chests ripped open and their arms torn off, and I'm just like, oh, that's cool. But the dog's panicking and trying to bite through that. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Those poor guys. So it's just a big mess out there. It, it, it's like a really graphic murder scene. It's a real mess. All the drilling equipment is wrecked. Everything has been messed up extremely. Yeah. And this is, it, this is the crazy stuff. Perhaps I had better put squeamishness aside and tell the worst at last. Though with a categorical statement of opinion, based on the first-hand observations and most rigid deductions of both Danforth and myself, that the then-missing Gedney was in no way responsible for the loathsome horrors we found. I have said that the bodies were frightfully mangled. Now I must add that they were incised and subtracted from in the most curious, cold-blooded, and inhuman fashion. It was the same with dogs and men. All the healthier, fatter bodies, quadrupedal or bipedal, had had their most solid masses of tissue cut out and removed, as by a careful butcher, and around them was a strange sprinkling of salt taken from the ravaged provision chests on the plains which conjured up the most horrible associations. The thing had occurred in one of the crude aeroplane shelters from which the plane had been dragged out, and subsequent winds had effaced all tracks which could have supplied any plausible theory. Scattered bits of clothing, roughly slashed from the human incision subjects, hinted no clues. It is useless to bring up the half-impression of certain faint snow prints in one shielded corner of the ruined enclosure because that impression did not concern human prints at all, but was clearly mixed up with all the talk of fossil prints which poor Lake had been giving throughout the preceding weeks. One had to be careful of one's imagination in the lee of those overshadowing mountains of madness. So they're, they're, they were, it would seems to be vivisected humans and dogs. This is the beginning of the most disturbing Law & Order episode. <laughs> <laughs> As you know, I remember reading this because in preparation of doing the graphic novel, this is the thing that kept me reading until about four in the morning. I just, that just completely got me. After all the travelogue we'd had at the beginning, this is the point where I just thought, oh, this is, this is nasty, this is really horrible. It's one of my favorite devices in horror when you, you, you arrive somewhere and you say something horrible happened here and I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. I also quite like the way that he, he, he basically has Gedney set up as a possible culprit mm-hmm. in the whole thing. I mean, he could have gone mad. He might have run off with the sledge and, you know, he might have gone crazy and killed everybody, but it's not physically possible for one man to have done half the things that were done in that camp. But I like the suggestion that they put in there because it's the, it's the thing that 
a rational mind would leap to, you know, in that circumstance. They wouldn't think it was, um, <laughs> they wouldn't think it was anything other than somebody gone crazy. Because exactly. initially they, they blame the dogs, and then they're entertaining the notion it might be Gedney. And, and, and it's such a crazy, why would he have done, Lake's anatomical instruments are missing, uh, but right. there's evidence that they were carefully cleansed for some reason. And there's also the salt around the bodies. What's, what's with the salt? That's what I want to know. I don't understand what that is about. So you're kind of thinking cannibalism or... <laughs> No, that he was sitting there with a knife and fork and a napkin tucked in. And <laughs> well, yeah, I don't. I mean, I didn't know if either of you guys had read. Maybe they used that salt in old medical practices of some kind. Yeah, or? sure. I mean, it's a way to preserve and drain the fluids from uh, bodies. So, you know, in mummification rituals, the first thing you do is take the body and pack it in salt for 40 days. And that would slowly pull all of the fluids out so ah. that it would preserve tissue and preserve skin and, and that sort of thing. Although the cannibalism thing, that's a great... <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of, the things, one of the things that was in Chapter 3 that we sort of skimmed over that they bring up again here is that there are missing bodies. The bodies of the things that they found are not here except for the yeah. six that were badly damaged. And they've been buried with snow tombstones basically put above them that are shaped as the five-pointed stars, which are similar to these five-pointed star things made out of that green limestone that they found. Yeah, the and soapstone. Got... Yeah, they found pieces of that here in the wreckage. Still, there's still some soapstone around. But yeah, if he'd gone crazy, he went crazy in a pretty specific, strange way. <laughs> Why did yeah. he bury those specimens? Exactly. And they also find... This is one of the lines that I, I thought was really funny, too. They found a jarringly comical heap of tin cans pried open in the most unlikely ways and at the most <laughs> unlikely places. What? <laughs> yeah, I imagined it like ripped in half. Yeah, but I would say it's it's comical. Like what in the what in the world would be how could you open up a can in a in a comical fashion? I would imagine it says that's not that's a hilarious way to open a tin of beans. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I just imagine the guys pick it up and they go, "Oh, somebody didn't know how to do this. Look, they took a big bite out of the side." And then they start laughing and then they just start crying. <laughs> 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 Yeah, oh, I like that geez. line a lot, too. But you also have earlier on when when Lake is in that cave and he finds all the debris on the base of the cave, on the cave floor, and he picks up a bone and, and he has a very perfect hole going through it as though it was speared by something. I almost imagine this alludes to that again, that they have some means. I don't know, maybe they got a Swiss Army knife <laughs> built into all those tentacles, but they essentially can open <laughs> stuff. I'm sure they do, actually. They're the most highly evolved things. Another thing I love about the scene is they find a jumble of roughly handled illustrated books scattered nearby. So whatever had happened, they had gone through the books, especially the illustrated books. I'm assuming these are anatomy books or things that tell them about technology, right? Right. Well, I mean, it is. I don't know if they would have so many anatomy books because, it. I mean, it, it's a geological expedition. Yeah. So maybe they're just like historical reference in those types of things for, for geology books and, and paleontology and archaeology kind of stuff. I remember when I was reading this chapter, when you're reading it, you're under no illusion as to what actually did this. Right. And I tried to think, okay, when this was originally published, would they have been thinking that, or do we have the hindsight of so many years of horror movies that we know exactly what's happened here? Yeah, I don't know. Like, Because I, I don't remember reading this and not knowing that it is those creatures. I mean, that's sort of one of the things with Lovecraft. I've, I've grew up with these stories or you know I've known them for so long I don't remember when I first read this if I, I'm sure I heard about the elder things before I even read this story so I knew what those things were and my mind instantly jumped to that 
but I think trying to objectively look at it, Lovecraft does a, enough, a good enough of a job of throwing out options. Like, mm. it's probably Gendy. You know, Gendy went crazy, but why would he go crazy in this way? And he's tipping his hand just a tad, and you, you think, well, oh, oh, maybe it's this, maybe it is that. And yeah. I, I think it's really well done. I do too, and I think that actually, that's a good question if people would have immediately said, well, it's the other things. I think they would have. I think the reason that this is particularly effective is if they were just monsters and they killed everybody, that's fine. But it's that they investigated things. Right. You know, almost like men investigating a, a civilization they didn't know about. They have done some kind of preservation. They've taken things like the gasoline stove. You know, they yeah. you know, they were using matches. There's matches all over the place. Like they were figuring those out. There's this aspect of what are their goals? You know, it wasn't just mm-hmm. to murder the people who had captured them. It was some maybe it was self defense. Or the nature of what happened and what the goals of the other are is hard to figure out. And that, to me, is the horrifying part. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. But also between the characters, there's a real sense of them looking at the situation and not wanting to say what it is that that has clearly happened here. But let's just, you know, they they jump into our rational explanations. But I think what's interesting is the the fact that they kind of, it's like that bit we're not going to talk about. We're not going to address that right now because that's crazy talk. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, uh, between uh, our two main characters, Dyer and Danforth, that's a constant kind of device between the two of them where Danforth will suggest something and then Dyer will say, I, I don't, let's not talk about that. That's not what it is. You know? <laughs> so right. Danforth is constantly sort of telling, uh, telling him, well, this is what's really going on. And Dyer's saying, no, it's not. And, you know, this, one of the things when I was reading it about Danforth is that he was a prodigious reader. He'd read loads of stuff and he used to read the pulps and the adventure magazines and things like that. So I had this picture of him saying, well, of course it's this. He would probably be in our mind of saying, well, clearly it's this kind of thing. So he's more willing to entertain the impossible at this point, I think, than Danforth, uh, than Dyer. Yeah. After being confronted with all of this terrible stuff, they, they bury the human parts, they bury the canine parts. And one of the dogs is missing as, as well, I believe. Gendy and the, one of the dogs is missing as well as some sleds and a sled and a few other items. Yeah. So they think they're, they're trying to find Gendy now. And Sherman and Peabody go for flight and they try to fly around to see if they can find him, find out where he went. Right. And they don't. Yeah, they assume they might find him just roaming around with some lipstick on, shouting crazy things, but they do not. <laughs> no. No. And lipstick on the dog as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, finally, they, um, in the midst of all this scientific exploration and, and the sense of adventure, does still prevail to an extent, and they, they figure we're here, we might as well investigate some of the things that Lake was reporting back. So it's decided that, that Danforth and Dyer are going to try this first. They're going to get up for an early trip, and they're going to fly up you know, to see all of the bizarre things that were reported by Lake. And they do. The next day at 7 a.m., they get their crap together, they get in a plane, and they start their ascent up these gigantic peaks. And they see all the bizarre things that were reported by Lake, the strange architecture, which looked like the ruins of Machu Picchu, uh, like the Giant's Causeway in Ireland they talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, they see that there are these caves everywhere. Do, do you know about the Giant's Causeway? As in what it scientifically is or mythologically, because... <laughs> uh, either. I think it was the two giants throwing rocks at each other, but I did, I did don't think that's science. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it. I don't know exactly, you know, what it is. But from the description that I read, it was lava that cooled and cracked yeah. into these hexagonal patterns, which is pretty weird. They look like stepping stones, but all at varying height. Right. And um, there's loads of them, and it's and it, yeah, it just looked like it was a sort of deliberate 
forma- you know, somebody had actually chiseled that out rather than it being a, a natural formation. And I think because of that precedent that these guys are initially, before they see the city, when they just see the cube-like structures in the mountains, they're just saying, okay, well, this could have happened naturally somehow. There are symmetrical things that happen in nature. Very specific geometrical shapes can evolve or can erode into being, right? I think he mentions in Arizona rock formations as well that almost look as if they were created on purpose, but they're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's also stone forests. Oh, right. As well. Have you heard of those? I think it's Mm -hmm. Singh National Park, which um, I might be completely wrong on that, but but if you look up stone forests on a search, they're really unusual rock formations, Mm -hmm. but very spiky. I use that as the basis, actually, for the mountains um, themselves, because this kind of like this idea that they were very... Long and I looked for actual rock formations to see if that, you know, that would ring true for something that uh, Dyer was looking at uh, and say, well, you know, this has happened somewhere else in the world. And this is a, I mean, he, in this book, he does that from the moment he sees those striated edges on the triangular print. He, he keeps rationalizing it in some way. And, mm-hmm. and with, as in it being a sort of like a, a pressure ridge or something like that. So he does that all the way through. And right. for him to do it at this point, yeah, totally expect him to keep rationalizing at this point. <laughs> well, at this point, they make, they're making their descent. They're, trying to, they're finding a, a place to land once they get up into the mountains. Mm-hmm. And, and then they get to see some crazy stuff. A few more feet of altitude and we would behold that realm. Danforth and I, unable to speak except in shouts amidst the howling, piping wind that raced through the pass and added to the noise of the unmuffled engines, exchanged eloquent glances. And then, having gained those last few feet, we did indeed stare across the momentous divide and over the unsampled secrets of an elder and utterly alien Earth. Can't wait to talk about that in the next episode. The next episode. Once again, I want to say uh, thanks to Reber Clark for doing that sweet, sweet music. Yep. Thanks to Joe Freya for providing our readings. And uh, I want to say uh, thank you, Ian, for, for taking some time and uh, and jumping on with us. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Would you want to come back for yeah, more? Absolutely. So That'd be fun how, about we, how about next week? You want to jump back in with us next week? Or will you be absolutely, able to? yeah. That should be fine. Yes. Ian, wh- wh- where can we get your adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness? We can get it, uh, well, you can get it, <laughs> we can get it. It's available through, there's a distributor called Turnaround that deals with it for international markets, or it's it's due to be published in the U.S. at some point. I'm not entirely clear when. I'll get clear on that for next time. And um, otherwise, it's available on Amazon. It's, yeah. Okay, well, I highly recommend that our listeners pick that up, and uh, we'll put up a link for the purchase of that. It's, it's a really great book. And- it's great. We're so glad to have had you on the show. Thank you very much. I also want to thank uh, Brooke Burgess for um, being our awesome intern and Mike Mann for being our amazing web guru. And I think that's all we got for this week. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Ian Colbert. Or shall I say, I am Jerry Colbert. It's uh, however you want to do it. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Now, Ian, you say at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. No, no, say at hppodcraft.com. Ah! man. Don't you listen to the show? <laughs> At hppodcraft.com. Beautiful. Yay! <laughs> All, right. All right, we got, got it. it. I'm shutting down here. hppodcraft.com. <laughs> <laughs>